Well, the topic of tithing is not, uh, it's not an easy topic. Uh, anytime we start talking about our money, uh, everybody gets a little bit nervous, gets a little bit uptight, uh, gets a little bit to feeling like, uh, you know, the Bible maybe is prodding into our lives a little further than uh, we would like it to. By the way, if you're a visitor, we never pass those churches around. That was just a, a little bit of dramatic effect. We don't, you know, afraid somebody get their eye poked out by the steeple. Um, but it's a biblical concept, uh, giving to God out of a joyful heart in response to what God has given for us. Uh, and we've been studying Genesis. We're continuing on in, a, in about a year-long study in Genesis, and we're going to, to come to the first time in Scripture tithing is mentioned. Uh, it isn't taught in Genesis, per se. In other words, it's not uh, in the law. You know, when you get later on in the books of Exodus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you get into the, the actual teaching of here's the things you ought to do. Tithing isn't presented in that way. It's, it's almost mentioned in an offhand manner. And so I almost skip by this passage. Uh, there's a lot of other stories in the life of Abraham that are, that are a little more compelling and a little more interesting. But when I realized that this is the first time anywhere in Scripture that this concept of giving to God 10% of that which, which he has entrusted to me, this is the first time it's ever mentioned, I thought, you know, it would probably be wise for us to pause uh, with a little bit of humor here to kind of get the, the conversation started, but to ask the question about the biblical foundation for giving, which is not the law, but rather it's my heart. And so if you don't walk away with anything else this morning, I hope you will at least uh, take a few moments as we go through these passages of Scripture and, and look at this biblical teaching on tithe, which deals with the foundation. And the foundation is my heart, not my duty, not my responsibility, not because the, the church is asking me to support this ministry or that ministry, but my heart towards God is really what is the central focus and most crucial to understanding this aspect uh, of our relationship with Christ. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 14, 11 through 20, and then we're going to skip ahead over to Hebrews and look at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, so we're going, to, we're going to kind of bounce around just a little bit. And I'll tell you right now, there's some uh, interesting names in this passage in Genesis. I've kind of walked around my office this week reading those names out loud, trying to practice them so I wouldn't mess them up this morning. Uh, but you'll see them when we get to them. But hopefully that won't distract you. Now, let me set up what's happened. Uh, Abraham has a nephew named Lot. Lot has gone to live in, in a little town called Sodom. You've maybe heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, during the time of Lot's sojourn there, some kings have come in, have invaded the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and have, and have won the victory and have carried away all the loot, all the gold, all the silver, all the animals, and all the, all the men and women to be their slaves. So Sodom and Gomorrah are in disarray, and Abraham's nephew Lot and all of his family and all of his possessions have been carried off uh, by the invaders. So that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 14, beginning uh, in verse 11. So the enemy um, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mari in the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. 
Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with their possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Shedlomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveth, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I'm skipping over to Hebrews chapter 7, just the first three verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, I would ask this morning again that that you would do something miraculous in our midst. Father, we're used to the common practice of coming, gathering together as a spiritual family on Sunday mornings, spending time in praise and worship. But Father, dealing with the God of the universe is anything but common. And again, Lord, I pray that you would, you would shake us from our casualness, that you would shake us from our uh, perhaps trifling with you, that we would understand that this is the living and active, powerful word of God. It, is, it, it is, doesn't matter what I say. My words are inconsequential. But the holy God of heaven has given us this word because he wants to invade our hearts and our minds with his truth. He wants to revive and renew our souls. Lord God, your desire not only that your name would be glorified, but that in that process, men and women and boys and girls would come to salvation and would walk in a new life, in a new manner, because our hearts and our minds have been transformed by the power of your word. So, Father, that's our prayer this morning, that you would come, that you would move me aside, that you would not let my sin stand in the way. Lord Jesus, that you would come and you would teach your people what you want us to know about hearts that belong to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to take a few moments this morning and look at both Abram, uh, and I may slip back and forth and call him Abraham. He gets the new name Abraham in a couple of chapters, uh, so I, I may uh, end up calling him that. But Abram and Melchizedek. And one of the things I, I noticed about this passage right off the bat is the kind of the personality of Abram. You know, a lot of people, when they, when they talk to Christians or they think about Christianity, if, they, if they're not disciples of Jesus, a lot of folks say, you know, it's weak people that need religion. You know, it's people that are kind of, kind of tepid and, and, and they're a little scared of the world. They need some kind of crutch, so to speak, to, to hang on to. And, and that's why they turn uh, to things like, uh, like Christianity. That's why they turn to, to books like the Bible. But really, the Bible is filled with all kinds of weak people who kind of can't find their own way and need, you know, need some kind of God to help them. And yet, when you read this passage of Scripture and you read about this, this uh, event in the life of Abram, you find that this guy is anything but fearful and meek and timid. He's just learned that an invading army has capt- has defeated several gathered kings in alliance and has carried off his nephew, and he doesn't stop to, to wonder whether or not uh, he should do anything about it. 
He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, you know, maybe I ought to, I ought to think about some way that we can negotiate a, a peace with them and maybe buy our relatives back. He gathers his guys around and says, come on, boys, strap on your swords. Let's go. Abraham is fiercely loyal to his kinsmen. He is a brave man. He is a military strategist. Did you notice how he divides his troops in the middle of the night when they get ready to ambush these invading kings? and how he routs a foreign enemy partially because of his great strategy. He becomes a victorious hero. He becomes the one who saves the day because of, his, uh, because of his courage, because of his instinctive battlefield decisions. Abram is not a guy to be trifled with. He's a man that you'd like to have as a friend, but you sure don't want him as an enemy. I picked up a, a magazine this week, U.S. News and World Report, that did a special edition on famous generals in United States history. And I read about uh, Washington and Nathaniel Green and the Revolutionary War and uh, Andrew Jackson and the War of 1812 and uh, the great generals of the Civil War, Sherman and Grant and Lee and Stonewall Jackson. I read about Pershing in World War I and Eisenhower and Patton in World War II. And all of these men uh, had a couple of things in common that made them great. They all had uh, plenty of flaws to go along with, with their personalities. But the reason they were great battlefield commanders is because they instinctively knew how to win. And they instinctively knew how to draw people around them to a common cause and to move forward in bravery, even, even when there was, uh, odd, the odds were stacked against them, even when they should have been fearful, they moved forward and were decisive. They were great leaders of men. And that's Abram. This is not a weak guy. This is not a guy who isn't sure how to react in time of crisis. This is, this is a man who knows how to think, who I said as before is fiercely loyal and who does what needs to be done in order to save his family. This is not uh, somebody who sits back and wrings his hands and worries. It's a strong man that we engage with here in chapter 14 of Genesis. And then we meet this obscure fellow named Melchizedek. And in verse 18 of chapter 14, it says this, uh, after, Adam, after Abram returns, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And then it talks about the blessing that he gives to Abram, which we'll come to uh, in just a minute. But in verse 18, we learn a couple things. We learn that he is the king of Salem, and he is also priest of God most high. It's the first time in Scripture that king and priest are put together to identify the same person. There are two words that are used to describe the same individual, but it won't be the last. And I want you to bear that in mind as we go through uh, this text. Uh, it's never, he's never mentioned before in Genesis, and he's never mentioned again in Genesis after this. We have to wait till later on in the Psalms where he's mentioned one time, and then later on in the New Testament he's brought up again. But this obscure king and priest, his name is Melchizedek. And he comes forward and he offers Abram this blessing. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me, if you would. It says this, And he blessed, he being Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered you, your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek, in his message to Abram, offers both a congratulations as well as a reminder. The congratulations kind of goes like this. Abram, God is with you. And notice who's with you. God most high, the one who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram, you haven't just chosen anybody to be your friend. <laughs> you haven't just, you know, you're not just rubbing shoulders with anybody. You are the friend of God most high, the one who owns all of creation. 
congratulations, Abram. This God has befriended you. This God has come alongside you and has made you part of his family. He is the creator and sustainer of all that is. This is the one who has become your ally. I just finished reading a a book on Harry Truman, biography of Harry Truman, long book, 900-something pages, and I finally uh, just got through it. Uh, But toward the end of of Truman's life, uh, he he finishes the presidency in his his latter 60s, moves back to Independence, Missouri, and lives there for several years uh, before his death uh, in the early uh, 1970s. And there's a, there's a scene in the book where there's a Presbyterian pastor of uh, First Presbyterian Church of Independence, Missouri. And he's been called on by the, the local caretaker to do a funeral of some obscure individual that nobody really knows. And so the pastor is retelling this story. And he says, you know, it's a cold, cold day in February. Uh, and I'm standing out by the graveside. And it's a couple minutes before the service is supposed to start. And we're, it's just me and the caretaker. There's nobody else here. Uh, apparently nobody really knew this fella. And we're trying to stay warm. It's freezing cold. You know, you think about western Missouri in the, in the dead of winter. And he said, I'm tempted to start the service early, but I thought, well, I better wait in case anybody shows up. And about a minute before the service is supposed to begin, this large green Chrysler pulls up. And he said, I recognize the car from seeing it around town. Secret Service agent hops out of the car, goes around, opens the door, and there's the ex-president, Harry Truman. He comes and he stands beside the casket. And we do the service. And I do the eulogy. And do the benediction. After the benediction, I, I looked at, at, at Mr. Truman. I said, Mr. President, why, why did you come out here and stand out here in the, in the cold? Obviously, this was, you know, this was a really obscure individual. He said, Truman looked me in the eyes and he said, Reverend, I never forget my friends. I never forget my friends. What Melchizedek is saying to Abraham, Abram, don't forget who your friend is. Your friend is not the president of the United States. Your president is the God of the universe, and he does not forget his friends. And so Melchizedek offers Abram a congratulations, but he also offers him a reminder. Look at the second half of that, of that blessing. He says, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. The reminder that he gives Abram is that, Abram, you didn't win the battle. You are not the one who ultimately turned the tide in your favor. It is God who gave you the victory. So Abram, you know, you see Abram coming back and he's pretty pumped up. He's pretty excited. He's routed the enemy. He's gotten everybody back unharmed. You know, you think they're going through the camp and he's wondering, oh my gosh, is Lot even alive? Has anybody been harmed in his family? Has anybody been hurt? And he finds out that everybody's okay and he gets all the possessions. He'd he'd be pretty psyched coming home. He'd be pretty pumped up. And he might have a, a good reason to have a little bit of pride. You know, I'm the guy that saved the day. And yet Melchizedek says, Abram, be careful. Don't forget that it is God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Well, why is this blessing from this obscure priest important? What does it matter to us today that Abram runs into this fellow named Melchizedek on his way home from this battle? I think in part to answer that question, we need to go over to Hebrews and get a little further insight into this fellow whose name is Melchizedek. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. I want to dwell on these two titles, king of righteousness and king of peace, because king of righteousness represents a perfect relationship between God and man. If you remember back a couple of weeks when we were talking about Noah, 
God says about Noah, he is righteous and blameless in his generation. And as we described on that particular Sunday a few weeks ago, righteous means that he was in good standing with God. Think about the vertical relationship, man to God. And that God is saying that, that, that Noah is a man of faith. He's a man who trusts in me. He's a man who walks with me by faith. And that's what's being said of Melchizedek here. He is the ultimate picture of the perfect relationship between man and God, which is built upon faith. But he's also called the king of peace. And the king of peace means that there's perfect harmony between God and man. Again, when you see peace in the scriptures, it always first and foremost doesn't relate to peace among individuals, but it primarily relates to peace between me and God. How do I know I have, I have peace with God? Because God has made peace with me through the cross of Christ. So when you hear the blessing of peace in scripture, you know, first and foremost, it's that we would be right with God. So here's Melchizedek who embodies the righteousness, the, the life of faith, and embodies the perfect relationship with God the Father. They are completely at peace. But the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, that doesn't mean the author of Hebrews is saying, you know, Moses forgot to jot down who his mom and dad were. Joseph for, uh, the Moses forgot to mention the family tree. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Melchizedek has no father. He has no mother. He has no genealogy. Why? Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He was immortal. Melchizedek was never born, and Melchizedek is never going to die. He lives forever. The strange king priest that hung out around Salem in Canaan about 3,500 years ago. But that's not all he says. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Not only is this strange character immortal, but he is also divine. Sound like anybody else you've ever met in Scripture, those of you that have, that have read the Bible? Sound like somebody you've heard of before who is both immortal and divine? I only know of one person that describes in Scripture. The only person that describes in Scripture is Jesus Christ himself. And many theologians would argue that this is what's called a theophany. Now, theophany simply means that before Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, that there were moments in the Old Testament where Jesus showed up physically on the earth and he appeared to people in physical form. We know that Jesus' existence didn't begin in Bethlehem. We know that Jesus was the pre-incarnate God of the universe. He has always been with the Father. He and the Father are one. You can read the first chapter of John for that particular lesson. But there are moments in Scripture when a character shows up like this who seems to be both immortal and divine and a name is not given and the encounter is relatively brief and it's somewhat obscure, but it happens several times in Scripture. It happens to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 before he leads the children of Israel into the promised land. It happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 when they're walking around in the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar says to his guard, how many guys did we throw in the fire? The guard says, we threw three guys in there. And he goes, that's right. How come I see fourth? And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. And that's, that's the whole story. That's all you get. Theophany, a representation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I don't think there can be any other definition to this Melchizedek than that of the divine son of God, clothed as Melchizedek, the priest who is a priest forever. 
The reason that Melchizedek's blessing is so important, therefore, is because it comes directly from the mouth of God. It's because of who Melchizedek represents. That Therein lies the power in the blessing. In the summer of 1992, I got a call from somebody who claimed to be calling from the White House, who claimed to be an assistant to the Vice President of the United States, who was going to be traveling through St. Louis in about a week, and who wanted to, to meet me and shake my hand and talk with me for a few minutes. I did what probably every person in this room would do if you got that call. I said, ha ha, real funny, and I hung up. <laughs> You know, what's the vice president of the United States doing calling Tom Ricks in, in little St. Louis, Missouri? He doesn't even know who I am. I went on about my day. Well, about two minutes later, my assistant walks in the room. And she says, I really, really think you need to take this phone call. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? She goes, it really, really, really is the White House on the phone. It's so-and-so who's the assistant of Vice President Quayle, and she wants to talk to you right now. I'm like, oh, man, okay. So I pick up the phone, and I, and, I, and I kind of stammer through this conversation, and I'm beginning to apologize. And the reason I'm apologizing, the reason I really thought it was a joke, is I had a good buddy who was the youth director at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, where the vice president and his family attended church. And I was quite certain that my buddy, Jim, was setting me up, okay? Hey, we'll get so-and-so to call Tom, tell him to show up at a certain place. The vice president will meet him there, and won't be a great gag when he shows up and nobody else is there. So I had reason to doubt. Those are the kind of friends that I have. Those are the kind of people that I, that I tend to hang around with. So when she starts to explain, I said, look, you know, Jim Burns, my buddy, she goes, oh, I know Jim. I go to his church. I understand why you would think that. But really, the vice president would like to meet you and talk to you about this particular deal. And I'm like, oh, my, oh my gosh. It is the vice president. And Abram was not meeting with the vice president. He was meeting with the king of the universe. He was meeting with the king of righteousness. He was meeting with the king of peace, none other than God himself. Now, how would you react if that happened to you? Not a call from the White House. How would you react if all of a sudden, in a moment of glory, in a moment of great victory in your life, in a moment where things have gone exceedingly well, God shows up and he blesses you? What would your reaction be? There's a lot of guys have different reactions in the Old Testament. We think of Noah getting off the ark. We didn't cover this part of it too much in the sermons on Noah, but he built an altar and he offered a sacrifice. That's a great response. You think about Moses when he comes to the burning bush and he has an encounter with God. What does he do? Takes off his sandals because the place where he stands is holy ground. He falls on his face and he worships God. That's a great response. Abram didn't do any of that stuff. Abram got blessed from God. And it says in verse 20 this, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Why didn't he build an altar? Why didn't he, he bow down to the ground? Why this giving of 10% of the, of the spoil from the battle? I believe because it was Abram's opportunity to give a tangible representation of his understanding and agreeing that God was the source of the blessing in his life. I believe it was a knee-jerk reaction on the part of Abram. I believe he didn't even stop to think about it. Again, remember, Abram's a decisive guy. He goes and fights a battle. He wins it, right? He's a man who's very sure of himself. And I think he said, you know what? It's time for me to give a tangible offering to acknowledge that God granted me this victory, that God is my Savior, and my tithe, my 10%, signifies my faith in Him. You see, friends, that's what this is all about. It's not about the duty of giving. It's not about the obligation of, of tithing. It's about a matter of the heart. 
And it's about whether or not I truly understand and embrace the fact, just like Abram, that I am saved by grace through faith, not of my actions, not of my ability to go and defeat an enemy, not be able to go rescue my nephew and bring everybody back and have everybody in the neighborhood pat me on the back and tell me what a great guy I am. But my salvation, my friendship with God depends solely and completely upon his grace. If I begin to understand that, my knee-jerk reaction is to want to praise him and worship him with every fiber of my being. And part of that fiber is what I own. Part of that fiber is the material blessing with which God has blessed me. And I can't wait to give back to him. That's why Paul says God loves a cheerful giver, not because he wants us to to be duty-bound, but because he wants our hearts to be captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the grace of the Lord Jesus There are other scriptures that build a a teaching and a theology on tithing. You can go to Malachi 3. You can go to the Old Testament books of the law and get the the responsibility of tithing. You can go and read Matthew 23 and look at Jesus' endorsement of the tithe. And you can get all the theology in the world right. But if your heart isn't captured by the gospel, if you don't get that this blessing given to Abram is passed on to you through Christ, then your heart won't change and all the giving in the world absolutely will not matter. The handling of my resources mirrors the priorities of my heart. And if I have faith in Christ and following Jesus is my top priority, then simply because of that, tithing will be a part of my faith journey. I thought maybe I should, you know, should stop and say, you know, I really want to tell you guys how great it is to give to Green Tree and how much we all need to to, uh, to do that. And, and I agree with that. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. We, um, we had an audit last spring. We have an audit from an outside agency uh, at least once a year. And, the, and there was nothing on the audit. Everything was perfect. They had no recommendations for us. I don't know if that's ever happened before, but I can, I can tell you, and I've told you before, you can, if you give money to Green Tree, you can trust that people are going to watch it carefully and steward it wisely and use it to the, to the, to the length to share the gospel with others as far as, we can, as far as we can stretch those dollars. I can tell you about how prudent our staff is. I can tell you about our lay team that, that runs our finance team and how careful they are. I can tell you about what a great job our accountant does. I can tell you about ministries and changed lives. And as we lead up to vision and provision in November, we will tell some of those life stories. But what I'm really concerned about this morning is not all of those details. I'm concerned about my heart and I'm concerned about your heart. My real concern, and I believe the concern in the passage in this scripture and in the book of Hebrews is an interest in our spiritual maturity in Christ. Giving is not the sum and substance of my faith, but an absence of tithing says something significant about my spiritual health. And the same is true for you. Abram couldn't help himself. It's almost like he got this blessing and he looked around and he said, get 10% of all that stuff and give it to this guy right now because look at what God has done for us. Is that my knee-jerk reaction? What do you do with this text? How do you apply it to your lives? Well, we're going to give you a moment or two to think about that in prayer. Uh, Jen's going to sing a song in just a couple minutes called Choose. Uh, And one of the lines in this song, Choose, is, let me be most satisfied in you. It's a prayer. The author is, the writer of the song is speaking to God. She says, let me be most satisfied in you. And I think a simple place to start in this whole question about tithing (laughs) Is, is that the condition of my heart? Is that the prayer that's on my lips this morning? Lord Jesus, am I most satisfied in you because you're the one who has saved me by your grace? Am I worshiping you 
with every part of my being, including my material resources. Some of you would answer that question with a resounding yes. For you tithing, you've you've got it. It is a huge blessing in your life. It is a joy of your life. And for you, I would just say, you know what? Spend some time in prayer and thank God that he's developed that maturity in your life and ask him to continue to build that in your life. But for some of us, and I struggle with tithing, I will admit to you from time to time that this is not an issue in my life that, that, um, that is completely resolved this morning. And as I looked at the sermon, one of the reasons I didn't want to preach it is because I didn't want to hear it. (laughs) But God's word is God's word. And I think for some of us, perhaps maybe a time of repentance saying, Lord, I I don't trust you as much as I should. My knee jerk reaction isn't always to give back, but I want to commit to you that I want you to change my heart, that I want you to transform the passions of my life so that you really will be my satisfaction. And my knee-jerk reaction when I look at the cross and I look at what you've done for me and I look at, at how Melchizedek spoke to Abram in the Old Testament and how that applies to me today, that the cry in my heart really will be to give to you, to love you, to worship you. Let's pray.